The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. And I want to call your attention once again to the last few verses in this chapter in which the Lord charged his disciples to reach the world with the good news of his kingdom. The primary reason of the commission that Christ gave was uh, to talk about his kingdom as the place where Jesus Christ reigns supreme and that all glory is to be given to him, the glory that he so richly deserves. And the only way that people can understand who Jesus is and why he deserves their adoration is by the salvation of their souls. And so the primary purpose of salvation is not to keep people out of hell. It's in order to make subjects of heaven, subjects of heaven who will for eternity say, what we read in Revelation chapter 5, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, blessing and honor and glory and power, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And that is the very thing that we do need to remember as we preach the gospel of Christ. We preach in order to reveal Christ, the one who is worthy of worship. It's to bring new subjects into the kingdom of God to recognize that he is the king, that others will recognize his authority. And that's what Jesus meant when he said that we are to disciple all nations. I think you can see that purpose in Jesus' personal ministry. He visited a woman at Jacob's well in Sychar. And she was a Samaritan, a very loose woman who didn't know who the true God is. And Jesus explained to her in John 4:23. He said, The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. So that's what God is looking for. God is looking for worship, and worship is the recognition and submission to the authority of Jesus Christ, and that's why we're told to bring people to the knowledge of the truth. Is it to keep people out of hell? Well, deliverance from hell is certainly a great benefit of the gospel of Christ, but... The main purpose is in order that we might glorify him and worship him. And that is a point that is extremely important, as we'll see in the message today, that there is no salvation for any person except as he receives the lordship or receives Christ as Lord of his life. And so that's what true salvation is. That's what true discipleship is. It is lordship salvation. And there isn't any other kind. It's to glorify the Lord and the ultimate purpose of our salvation is that glory. Now, we look at our text then, beginning in verse number 16. And I, I think I'll ask you to stand with me again as we read God's word. Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them 
in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great commission that you've given. We ask you, Lord, that you'd help us to obey it in all of its facets, and that we might recognize that all power belongs to you. All authority is yours in heaven and in earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The text that we're reading now took place sometime during the 40 days between Jesus' Uh, death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. And during that time, the Lord had multiple appearances and gave infallible proofs that he had truly risen. And although he spoke the same identical words in Acts chapter 1, he spoke those from the Mount of Olives just before he ascended into heaven, we know that this particular place is not that place Because the scripture very clearly says that Jesus told his disciples to meet him in Galilee. Now, just as a review of what we've talked about in these uh, few messages on the commission, uh, we called that that first part there, when Jesus told them to meet him, we called that the engagement. That that was the time and the place where they were to meet Jesus, and the disciples were to put that on their calendar, or I think as we would say today, put it on the to-do list, And that was at the very top of that list, and it was one of the most important things, if not the most important thing, that they could do at this time, that they were to meet him on a mountain. Now, they didn't know, or they did know, I should say, which mountain. Uh, The text doesn't tell us where it was, but it was in Galilee. And there are places that are proposed to be where Jesus met with these disciples. But I have in my mind that the most logical place would have been for Jesus to meet with them where he had given the most important sermon that he had ever given. That was the Sermon on the Mount. That was the manifesto of his kingdom. That's what he, where he told people what life in his kingdom was going to be about. And so I can't think of a better place that Jesus would go to give a commission to bring people into his kingdom than to tell them to go right back to that place where the Sermon on the Mount was delivered. But we don't really need to worry about it. The scriptures haven't seen fit to give us the location of it, so we don't need to argue about it. The most important thing that we see here is that Christ promised that he would be there. And when the disciples went, they would see him there. And it wasn't to go view the mountains like I do when I go to the mountains. That was not their purpose. Their their purpose was to see Jesus Christ. And this is so important for us that when we learn to obey Christ, we will see him. I don't mean that we see him with physical eyes. I'm not uh, talking about some vision that you might have of Christ or a dream that you might have of him. No, we see Christ by faith. We see him by the eye of faith. He's present with us by faith. This is what Jesus said to Thomas. He said, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Well, people think that they have something impressive to tell. You'll hear people say, well, I had a vision of Christ. I saw Christ, or, and I, he spoke to me, and so that's why I follow him, because he spoke to me. I saw him, and I saw his presence. That convinced me that I ought to follow Christ. Well, I'm not very impressed by that at all, because... That actually is a weak faith. If you have to see Christ physically in order to follow him, you have a weak faith. Now, we have faith 
just believing in our heart that God said it is so, and so we believed it. Now next we looked at the enthrallment. When they saw Jesus, they knew that it was him, they worshipped him, they fell face down, fully prostrate before him. And we know that because that's inherent in the word worship. That's what it meant to worship in their culture. And so they bowed before him. And this is what people did when they had encounters with the one true living God. And they knew that Jesus was that one true living God because he came back from the dead. These many appearances when he came back from the dead showed that he was truly God. And so I think that they were much like Moses at the burning bush, that they were standing on holy ground in the presence of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the living Lord. And true obedience to Christ, a real desire to obey His commission, is not going to come until we have decided that we're going to worship Him as Lord. We recognize who He is. See, it's a very difficult thing for you to go out and to speak to a hostile world about who Jesus is, people who don't want to hear about him, people who want to live in their sin and do what they've always done. They don't want to receive the message of Jesus Christ, so there are multiple hardships in preaching the gospel. But those things are overcome for the believer. The fear is overcome when we recognize that he is truly Lord, that he's the one who controls all things. And so we can say, I'm not going to fear man. What can man do to me? Because God is the one who is in control of it all. But you might witness because you feel an obligation to do it. You might witness because a pastor has pressured you to do it. He wants your soul-winning report to be turned in. You might witness because you need to meet the church's goals of numbers of doors knocked and professions counted. But you're not going to do this because you want to, unless you have met Jesus Christ and have fallen at his feet to worship him. Oh, God wants worship, and a numbers report is not a guarantee that Christ has been honored by personal devotion from the heart. Well, then after the engagement and the enthrallment, we looked at the verse that anchors this section. That's verse number 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And this is what we call the elevation. This is the declaration of the supreme deity of Jesus Christ. This is his lordship statement. And there is no description of Jesus anywhere in Scripture that is any greater than this. This is the universal affirmation that he is the one who is the living Jehovah God. And what we have here is a Trinitarian statement. Power means authority. All authority is given to him. And that indicates that there is someone with authority to give all authority and there is someone to receive all authority and to exercise all authority. And this is exactly what we find in Scripture when Jesus said, I and my Father are one. We have here a Trinitarian statement. This is spoken of also in the Psalms when God spoke to the Son and said to him, I will give you the uttermost parts of the earth for your inheritance. We find that it's also spoken in Isaiah when the Scripture says that His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and that He is called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. If you haven't heard that exposition of verse number 18, then you need to go back to that and listen to it because this is the very reason that we obey Him. This is why you can do nothing other than to obey Jesus Christ. 
And that is because he does have supreme authority. He is king over heaven, over earth, over angels, over everything seen and everything unseen. And that authority rests upon an eternal covenant. An eternal covenant that was made between the Father and the Son and worked out through the agency of the Holy Spirit. It is actually the only reason that you can be saved. It's the ultimate determination of who will be saved. Salvation rests upon the fulfillment of the covenant made between the Father and the Son. And when Jesus said, all authority is given to me, that was the signal of the successful completion of this covenant. That's the signal that the transfer of authority is ready to be made. God did that by raising Jesus from the dead. And it was all done then. All the covenant was finished then. Jesus said to the Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. And so that work that was given was the work of redemption. It was for Jesus to become a man, for him to die for our sins, and then to reconcile us to God by faith in him, and to restore us back to the purpose for which we were created. And that is to glorify God. So you see that salvation is far more than a point in time. Oh, you can talk about the day that you were saved, the hour that you were saved, but salvation is far more than just a point in time. Salvation is according to an eternal covenant. It goes back before the foundation of the world, and even though your decision for Christ is an absolutely necessary one, that is not the determining factor in the plan of God. It is what God did Himself. Well, we work our way down through these verses, and Now we come to the last two verses in the book, and these are commonly called the Great Commission. These are the marching orders for the eleven disciples, and through them they become the mandate for the church. So the fourth thing that I would like to talk with you about today is the emphasis. Part number four is the emphasis. We're talking about the elements, or perhaps the part of the commission that is accentuated the part of this that is the most important. Verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. I want you to think for a minute of all the sermons that you've heard preached on these two verses. I don't know how much the denominational churches preach these verses, but I can tell you this for sure, that Baptists, especially independent, fundamental Baptists, preach these verses very hard, and we preach them often. Let me speak to you first about the imperative, the imperative of the commission. And I want you to look at verse number 19 and tell me which of these commands is the one that's always the one most heavily emphasized. I think most of us would say it's the very first word, that it's the word go. That is taught to be the imperative of the commission. It's the most important part of all because this is the thing that gets gets us to push out, that gets people out of the door of the church and to be actively engaged in the Lord's work. And so we say it's the word go. That's the imperative that we find in this commission. But would it surprise you to learn that it's not actually the word go? It's the second verb in the sentence. That is the operative imperative of the commission. The driver is not go, it's the word teach. 
Now, in our King James Version, we see the word go, but that's an assumption that's already made. Go, in the original language, is a participle, just like baptizing and teaching in verse number 20. And so we could read the verse in this way, going, teach all nations, or perhaps easier to understand, we would read it this way, having gone, teach all nations. Now you can see that understanding the participle changes which word is the most important. Perhaps this is a very subtle point and maybe one that you don't really think is all that important, but I think that getting the right emphasis here gives us a greater understanding of verse number 18 about Christ's authority. The assumption here is that going is never going to be a question, that you have accepted Christ's authority. So it's not going to be in question about whether you are going to go because of his authority indicated by the therefore in verse number 19, therefore because he has authority, you will go. So it looks to me that Jesus is saying going is a foregone conclusion. Now obviously, you can never teach all nations unless you do go. And I don't know if you get my thinking on this, but what stands out to me is that for someone who is saved by the grace of God, they must have already accepted Christ's authority. They've already recognized that he has authority, so they don't really need to backtrack over this information to say, well, that's the imperative to go. No, they've already said, I'm going to do this because I've respected Christ's authority. But as I told you in the last message, what is our problem in our, in our church, this church and many other churches? We have uh, issues with authority. We have problems doing what we're told to do. We don't really respect the authority that's been given. Now, Christians ignore God's commands all of the time. We ignore His command to be in church on Sunday. We ignore His command to forgive others. We ignore the command to bear one another's burdens. We ignore his commands that we are to pray. We ignore his commands that we are to read the word of God. So it isn't any mystery that people ignore his command to go. Going is absolutely necessary. I don't mean to diminish that. But Jesus is actually directing us towards the importance of the next word. And that is the word teach. And he wants that word to stand out above all the others. Teaching is the imperative, and I do want you to understand why. Now, you'll notice that there are two times that we see the word teach here. In verse number 19, there's the word teach. In verse number 20, it is teaching. But those aren't actually the same words in the original language. In the English translation, we have teach and teachings, and it looks like the same But that first word is actually a word that means disciple. He's saying, go ye therefore, go and disciple. Go and disciple all nations. We are disciple to disciple, or make disciples of all nations. So that means that we are to make them learners. That's what a disciple is, to make him a learner or an inherent, which is another word that describes what a disciple is. An inherent is a learner of a teacher. Well, Pharisees said, well, we are not Jesus' disciples, we are Moses' disciples, and what they meant is we adhere to Moses. We don't adhere to Jesus Christ. Of course, they didn't do either, but they said, we're not his disciples, we are disciples of Moses. 
And so, to make disciples of Jesus means much more than just a knock on a door to present three points and a prayer, write down a name, and then to head off to another house. We're not talking here about decision-making, soul-winning, just pressing somebody to get a decision so you can fill out the report. But in these verses is the combination of what real soul-winning is, or more particularly, what real salvation actually is, Real salvation is to become an adherent of Jesus Christ and to recognize his authority over your life. Now, when a person signs a decision card and his name gets put on the soul-winning report, and yet he never surrenders to Christ's authority, that person is not a disciple and neither is he saved. Now, surprisingly, there are great soul-winning ministries that, say, that actually do say this, that it's possible for you to be saved and yet never become a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's something that could or may not happen later. But it's not necessary. It's not necessary for you to be determined to give up all of your sin and follow Jesus Christ and acknowledge Him as your Lord. Oh, they say the thing that you really need to be concerned about is salvation from hell. That's the important thing. You need to repent of unbelief. That's really all that you need to worry about. And so these ministries have actually redefined repentance. This is what Dr. Curtis Hudson did. He redefined repentance to make it the same as faith. And so I wonder, how can they preach go as the imperative and follow the command to go and make disciples? Well, at the same time, they say that you don't have to be a disciple in order to be a Christian or to be saved. Now, what we find here is that there is no separation in this text between being saved and becoming a member of God's kingdom, becoming a subject of the kingdom. In other words, salvation and Jesus being acknowledged as Lord of his kingdom are one and the same things. So we're not told here, go get people saved and then make them disciples. That's not what the scripture says. It says, go and teach, go make disciples. And that salvation and that discipleship are one and the same things. But the soul winning ministries reject this. They protest what we call lordship salvation because lordship salvation puts this huge hole in their numbers. It puts a huge hole in the ones that they say, well, these people are saved. Look how many we got saved today. And so they have made a decision. They say they've made a decision to follow Christ when they actually haven't become disciples. Well, I don't think this is all that hard to figure out, that lordship is exactly what Jesus demands for entrance into the kingdom. You can't get into his kingdom unless you've acknowledged that he is Lord. He has all authority. That's the whole point of his commission. And so is he ever going to accept people into his kingdom that reject his authority? Oh, the whole, the whole point of salvation is to recognize that authority and to glorify him. So he's never going to save anyone who in his profession of faith does not absolutely say, I will renounce all of my sin and I will follow Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how much you're following the argument at this point, but this is what happens when you teach that salvation from hell is the first priority, and that comes before the glory of Christ. That will mark your position as non-lordship, 
And quite frankly, that misses the whole point of Christ's commission. Christ says, make disciples. In other words, go and make true worshipers. Make adherents that will glorify me. And that's the real imperative. And so to sum up this point, inherent in, inherent in real saving faith is absolute surrender to the authority of Christ. There could never be a person at the point of salvation who refuses the authority of the king. Oh, there are times that you will disobey the king. There's no doubt about that. Once you're saved, there are many times that you disobey the king, but there is nobody who comes into Christ's kingdom with his eyes wide open and says, I want to be saved from hell, but I'm not really ready to give up my sins. No one comes into Christ's kingdom that way. But let's suppose that you have a non-lordship view, as many fundamental Baptists do. What do you say to a person at the door who says, well, yes, I I want to be saved from hell, but I'm not going to stop beating my wife. And you say, well, that's okay. Just sign here. We'll talk about that later. We'll deal with that problem a little bit later. But if you have a non-lordship view, that's what you do. You deflect the question and you say, well, you don't really need to worry about that. You just need to repent of unbelief. But then the man says, well, I'm also having an affair with my coworker, And I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. Do I have to stop doing that in order to be saved? What would you say? Oh, no, don't, don't worry about that right now. Let's don't talk about that. Get saved from hell and we can deal with that later. Now, if you get a person to agree like that and say, I believe, is that real saving faith? Is that real faith? Did, ever, did Jesus ever practice that, or did he ever call that soul winning? What is saving faith? It's when a person says that I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe that Jesus died to take away all of my sins, and I surrender to him, and I want to follow him. And if you get any other commitment from that from someone, you have met a hardened sinner, and you have left him that way. So you have to say to that person, Oh, I'm sorry, you don't understand. You don't understand what this is about. Christ died to save you from your sins. And so you must repent of those sins. So yes, you do have to repent of beating your wife. Does that mean that we've added something extra to faith? That's the claim. That if I were to say to that man, well, yes, you have to stop beating your wife, you've got to stop getting drunk, you've got to stop doing this or that, they say, well, that's adding to faith. That's not adding to faith, that's expressing what real faith is. Because this is what faith in Christ does. It renounces sin, it accepts Him and believes that He is Lord of all, and that's all you want is for Him to be Lord of all. So you don't want to hold on to your sin. There is no other saving faith but that. Now one more question about this. What if the woman at the well had said to Jesus, you know, I really like the idea of the living water, I like that you're offering me living water, and I'll take some of that. But as far as repenting of of five divorces and to quit living with the man that I'm living with now who's not my husband, I don't think I'm quite ready for that. What's Jesus going to do with a case like that? What's he going to do about his own line? The Father seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. I don't think the Father would be very happy if Jesus saved somebody like that, do you? What's the imperative? Make disciples. Make adherents. And 
those are the only ones that are going to step even one inch into Christ's kingdom because they're the ones that recognize his authority. Now let me move on to the next part. Who is to hear the gospel of Christ? Well, next we see the inclusion. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Now remember that therefore relates to the authority in verse number 18. Because I have authority, do this. My first comment would be how difficult it was for the disciples to do it. It was a very physically demanding task. But I don't want to talk about that part. Maybe we'll do that later. What I would rather talk about now is that this was an absolutely difficult mental task. What they had to do was wrap their heads around a concept that they were completely opposed to. You see, Jesus didn't mean, go find Jews in all nations and evangelize them. No, we have a command here that's also about Gentiles. Now, the idea, is that, the idea that Gentiles would be in, a, in the kingdom was not an idea that was foreign to them. That concept is taught multiple times in the Scriptures. The Old Testament talks about that. And even Jesus modeled it in his own ministry. He did say, you remember, he did say that he was sent primarily to the Jews, but he didn't completely ignore Gentiles. And we've just seen that by talking about the woman at the well. Now, there was a woman that was a half-breed Jew, which in the Jew's mind was not a Jew at all. She was considered to be a Gentile. But we really have a, a greater example, um, a more noteworthy example, perhaps, that really drives the point home of this, right here in the Gospel of Matthew, and that's back in the 15th chapter. Now, I'd like you to turn there, if you would, to the 15th chapter, and here is one of the most unusual events that we see in Jesus' life as he was witnessing the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 15 and verse number 21. And this is when Jesus had retired. Uh, when I say retired, he had left Galilee for a little bit of rest. And uh, Matthew 15, 21, it says, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. That means he went beyond the borders of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Well, this is harsh, isn't it? Verse 27, And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Here is a woman that knew what Jews thought of Gentiles. What did Jews think of Gentiles? Gentiles are dogs. They're only worthy of crumbs. And her idea of how she stood in the eyes of God was very much different than what the disciples thought about themselves. They were still of their pharisaical notions that they were somebody. They had their opinions that hadn't been rooted out yet. 
And so they were in agreement that Gentiles would be in the kingdom, but not as equals in the kingdom. Restoration of God's kingdom meant that Gentiles would be put under the feet of the Jews. They would be put into their rightful place under their feet. And they would think about how, the Rome, how Rome had usurped the authority of the Jewish nation and had become rulers over them. And they said, well, what God's going to do when he restores the kingdom, he's going to make all things right, and he's going to put the Gentiles back under our feet. But they didn't yet understand what Christ was going to do with his church, and they didn't know what Christ had done at the cross, that he had ended all these divisions between people. That now there are no more Jews or Gentiles as regards the church. But their understanding of this didn't come here on this mountain. And it wasn't when Jesus ascended into heaven. And it wasn't there yet on the day of Pentecost. And so we wait all the way until we come to Acts chapter 10. And the only way that Peter would change his mind about preaching to Gentiles was for God to give him a special vision of this great sheet, this great sheet let down from heaven like a net in which was contained all of these different kinds of animals that Jews were forbidden to eat. And God said to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter told God, I can't do that. I can't do that because we're not permitted to eat those kinds of food. And God said, what I have cleansed, don't you call common and unclean. And what he meant was, my people are among the Gentiles as well. So you go and you preach to them. So Peter was not to pick and choose who he was going to give the gospel to. Now, I don't have time for the whole story, but the, but the end of that, the conclusion of it, is that Peter went, as God said, he preached to the Gentile Cornelius, and Cornelius and his house were saved. And then just to follow that up, when Peter returned from Caesarea, from that episode, he was met in Jerusalem by the church's sanctified holy committee. And they were none too happy about what Peter had done. But then Peter had to explain to them what God said in Acts 11, and the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest into men uncircumcised, and did eat with them. Now, did you know that there are some people in the church that you are not going to get past until you've met their standard of holiness? That's what Peter ran into. So Peter went over it, he gave them the explanation, and it took all the way from Matthew 28, 19 until Acts chapter 11 for the disciples to get on board with this, that Gentiles were going to be received as equals into the kingdom of God. That everybody can believe in Jesus Christ. He will save anybody who comes to him. Now the inclusiveness of the Great Commission is all nations. There isn't anybody that is not to be preached to about Jesus Christ. We are to have no prejudices about anybody in preaching the gospel to them. But now we come to the part that people don't like, the inclusion everybody's in favor of. What they don't like is the next part, and that is the exclusion. Jesus said, they were to disciple all nations. But did that mean that all people in all nations would be saved? I'm not going to get much into this argument. If you've been in Berean for very long, you already know what I believe about this. It's what the Bible teaches, what I believe. But I do have to make a few comments. First, there is no teaching of universalism here. 
Universalism means eventually everybody's going to be saved. Everybody's going to be saved. So then we don't really need to worry about hell. Hell can't be real, and there is really not a need to preach the gospel because someday everybody is going to be saved. Now, the second comment is about what Jesus said in verse number 18. He said, all authority is given unto me. That Christ has all authority in heaven and in earth. So let me ask, what are you going to do against that authority? What is possible for you to do against the authority of Jesus Christ? Do you think that it's possible for anyone to frustrate the purposes of God? Is that possible? All authority is given to him, so can you frustrate any purpose of God? Well, his intention is to glorify himself by making subjects of his kingdom. So are you going to do anything to frustrate that purpose? And if you think that you can, then you have a mighty high opinion of yourself. God does not save all people in all nations, which is universalism, and he never had any intentions of saving all people in all nations. How can I say that? Well, I can say it because God is never frustrated. And yet that's the teaching of most Baptists, that God is continually frustrated because there aren't enough people that believe in him. And so they, they teach that Christ's sacrifice is largely frustrated because Christ wants to save all, but he can't save all because we won't let him. Let's take a look at this and see, is God actually beat down by man? Can we frustrate God's purpose? Well, God allowed the Apostle John to see the future in heaven, and I think he was well able to see that Matthew 28, 19 was perfectly fulfilled. And this is what John wrote in Revelation 7. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and under the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Let me ask, does that sound like a frustrated God? Are there some missing here who should have been there? Are there some missing from the scene who could have been there? Well, if that's so, then what we should have here is a cry of mourning. There should be sadness that goes up here. Everybody should be crying because there are some people missing. God wanted to save them, but he couldn't. And so they wouldn't be praising God. They said, why couldn't God save them? He could do that, couldn't he? And you know, if you get this truth settled in your mind, that this is a liberating thing, many people, uh, many, many of you know that just the, you, you felt the pressure from preachers that want you to get out there and they want you to get the decisions. And if you don't get all that you're supposed to get, then you're a failure to them and to their soul winning teams. And then you're strangled with these thoughts. I'm responsible for people going to hell. You're not responsible. Nobody could ever live with that responsibility. You, you would, you would, your, your mind would explode if you felt like you had and really knew the responsibility that you felt like I'm responsible for all these souls that are in hell. 
You're not responsible. You're responsible for only one thing. Plant the seed. Oh, it's strange that the same soul-winning guys that will give staff people the boot because their numbers are not big enough. And they cite William Carey, who is the father of modern missions. I don't know if you know who Carey is, but he's the missionary back in the 17th century that carried the gospel to India. And this was at a time when missionaries weren't, be, weren't being sent out, and so he became the father of modern missions. And they use William Carey of, go, 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 go to the heathen people and preach the gospel of Christ. But they never emphasize this part about William Carey, that he had nothing to report for seven years. How long do you think that he would have stayed on the staff of the megachurch without anybody being saved for seven years? They would have kicked him off a long time before that. What are we supposed to do? Plant the seed. And then God does with that seed what he wills. And if your report is blank when you come back, just keep sowing seeds. You don't have to worry about this. You don't have to worry that God is unable to populate heaven. John's already seen that. Do you get that? Oh, isn't that just amazing? It's already been settled. It's already been settled before the foundation of the world. A vast multitude are going to be in heaven. And the gospel is God's means. It's not ours. God is never frustrated. God saves all that he intends to save. And so are you bold enough to say that there should be some there that God didn't save? That God did not intend that any would be missing from heaven, God intended some to be saved, but they never actually made it? You know what that's saying? It's saying that Christ did not do what he wanted to do when he went to Calvary. That he didn't complete what he said that he was going to do when he went to Calvary. Do you ever find anything like that in the Word of God? Do you ever see Jesus frustrated about what he came to do? Didn't he say, I have done everything that you told me to do? That's what he told the Father. And then he prays in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him, listen, power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And then... He goes on in his prayer, verse 18, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. I don't think that I would ever say that God did not answer the prayer of his own son, the one in whom he's well pleased. And by the way, what, what does he mean here in verse number 21? What does he mean by the world there? Well, the answer is not all people in the world or else this prayer was not answered because all people in the world aren't saved. So what does he mean? He simply means... Jews and Gentiles, all the people in the world, Jews and Gentiles, in the sense that anybody who believes the gospel of Christ may be saved. So don't pressure people for decisions. Don't pressure yourself into getting more results than God himself intends. 
God includes and God excludes, and he does both of those for his glory. And let me tell you something, you are not now, nor were you ever, in charge of God's glory. God glorifies himself through his own great works. Now we've got a lot more to go here. It is the great commission. It deserves a great amount of time. And here's the point that I want to drive home today. Christ said, go. And he never thought that there would be anyone who is presently in his kingdom who wouldn't recognize his authority to tell them to go. It's a foregone conclusion that anyone who that is saved has already accepted that authority. Then secondly, the main emphasis of the commission is to make disciples, that is to reproduce by making new converts that will change from hostility and hatred of God to receive him as Lord of their lives and then give him all the glory that he deserves. Faith in Christ is to surrender all that you are to all that he is. And then thirdly, you honor Christ by going and witnessing for him, and he will receive glory from those acts to the full extent that he intends to receive it. You haven't failed if the people that you speak to aren't saved, and certainly God has not failed. The only thing that you can fail is in, your, in, fail in, is in your obedience to do this. And that one thing, that one thing, is something that you can do something about. You can obey his authority to go and make disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we do thank you, Lord, that you are the great God, that you are the one who saves people, that all of this works out according to the counsel of your will. We are to be faithful to preach the gospel, as you've told us to do. And then from there, it's simply in your hands. You, you have to do what, what needs to be done. If you decide to save, you will save. If you don't, you don't. We have no reason to argue with that. Lord, we just thank you that salvation is in you, and it's only possible because of what you have done for us. Lord, I pray that you would open up someone's heart to the gospel today, convict them of their sins, and may they come to you confessing you as Lord and Savior of their lives and to enter into your kingdom. Help us, Lord, as the body of Christ, as the church here, to reach people with the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever read any place in Scripture where it gives the Great Commission, in which it says, or Jesus said, Go ye into all the world and tell people that there is a higher power. Go ye into all the world and tell people what you need to do is embrace a higher power. Surrender yourself to a higher power. Go ye into all the world and preach that it's okay to believe in Allah, and it's okay to believe in Buddha. It's okay to believe in your ancestors. It's okay to believe in the God's of your own choosing, of anything that you want to make, just as long as you recognize there is a higher power. Oh, what Jesus said, I am the higher power. There is nobody but me. I am the higher power. And then he said, nobody comes to the Father, or he meant nobody gets into heaven, nobody can be saved except through me.
I'm the only way that you're going to get there. And so Jesus never said, go and convince people that there are ways to get to heaven. I am the way. And either you believe that Jesus was true or you believe he was an absolute liar when he said that because he can't be both. He has to be one or the other. He must be true or he must be a liar. I choose to believe that he was telling the truth because I'm never going to call Jesus Christ a liar. Do you believe him? That's the impl- He's the only one that you can believe in to be saved. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is that only way. And you must surrender to him fully and completely as Lord of your life or you're not going to heaven. It's as simple as that. Surrender to Jesus Christ. I encourage you to do that today. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.